you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had be content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say, when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Show us Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, th- this, is a, this is a passage that's very tempting for me. You know why it's tempting? Because it's a military history encounter when you read it, isn't it? it if, you, if you read chapter 7 and chapter 8, you'll see a battle described, a historical battle, and we used to do this in the army. You, you study military history to learn lessons from it. So this is how it could go, right? Well, obviously, chapter 7 is a failure of intelligence. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Because we just read there that um, after the triumph of the Battle of Jericho, Joshua looks at the next target, it's I, and he sends out some more spies to do some reconnaissance, and they come back with a grossly inaccurate estimate of the enemy's combat power. So in verse 3, they say, don't have all the people go up. Just let two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Don't make the whole people toil up there for their few. No, just, just send a few. It'll be enough to get this job done. And then overconfidence and complacency and a sense of hubris lead Joshua to decide to send an inadequate amount of troops. And the result is a fiasco. Uh, unexpected fiasco. 36 soldiers are dead, uh, morale of the troops suffer, demoralization sets in, and then Joshua decides to restore discipline and morale by making an example. 
He chooses an insubordinate soldier, every army has them, chooses that one, makes an example of him, discipline is restored, morale returns, the campaign gets back on track, and in chapter 8, Joshua learns his lessons, and this time he uses stealth, he uses surprise, he uses good planning and execution, I falls easily, campaign's back on track. So, so the big three-point sermon this morning then is you need to plan carefully, Number one, plan carefully. You need to maintain discipline. And thirdly, you need to beware against overconfidence. Now, in the words of, of Dave, the Reverend Dave Chiswell last week, if you think that is the message of Joshua chapter, chapter, Joshua chapter 7 and 8, I love you, but you're wrong. <laughs> Quote Dave Chiswell. So what is this about then? Like, if, if that is not what it's about, and it's not, by the way, then, then what is the big focus of chapter 7 and 8? Well, let's look at it together, and we see the focus of the Old Testament. It's got three things that really come out of these two chapters. And the first one is this. God's people are tempted to covet the things of the world in which they live. God's people are tempted to covet. And, and for, in this instance, the robe was beautiful. Who doesn't want a robe? Like, I, I have robes. I'm not wearing them this morning. Uh, but who doesn't want a robe, right? Which guy doesn't want a robe? This one shimmered, and, and next to it was, was some gold, which also shimmered, and, and some silver. And he knew that he wanted it. And maybe he thought he deserved it. It's been a long time in the wilderness. And here's stuff that's just going to get burned. And he knew what God had instructed through Joshua in chapter 6, verse 18. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. You, otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and you'll bring trouble upon it. He knew what it was that he shouldn't do, but he was tempted to do it. Sound familiar? Um, you and I live in a world where there are many things to covet. There are many things. We, we live in one of the richest countries on earth. There's, there's material things, and they're so shiny, aren't they? And they lure our hearts. There are other things, though, that are not material things, which we think about, well, God wouldn't really care. After all, he made me with these desires, so they can't be bad, can they? And, and I deserve to be happy, and I need these things to make me fulfilled. Temptation to covet the things of the world. God's people had it then, they had it now, and they had it from the beginning. This is not a new story. I appreciate what Calvin was saying about the, the history, because this is not new. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die but it looks so good. And the serpent says, you won't surely die. This is an old story. Firstly, God's people are, are tempted to covet the things of the world. We see that in this chapter. And secondly, the price of disobedience is terrible. Th th these are two heavy chapters of Scripture because you see, Achan was the man's name, and he thought that he got away with it. It was a clean heist. The getaway car was there on time. It was, he got away, and then, the, then he closeted the goods in the basement of his tent. No one knew. 
He got away with it. But he had a problem, he just hadn't realised it yet, and that is that he was robbing a holy God, a God who sees all things. And the anger of a holy God burns in this chapter against disobedience. In verse 15, God says to Joshua, and he who has taken, is, is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And, and if you, we didn't read that this morning, but in your Bibles, you see as we go forward to the next passages, you'll, what happens is God goes through this very deliberate process and it's relentless. Did you notice that? He gets the whole people of Israel. There might have been a couple of million people at that time. And then, then one tribe is, everyone else go back to your tents. This tribe, the tribe of Judah, you come forward. And then they go through the clans of the tribe of Judah and, and nearly all of them are set aside except one. And then they go through the families and it gets narrowing down, narrowing down. How do you feel if you're aching at this point? You're starting to, it's relentless. It's closing in on him and then suddenly there's only a handful of people and then suddenly there is Achan in the spotlight of God's anger and wrath. He's, he's relentless. You can't escape it. And in verse 18, when, when we get the perpetrator... And we get his heritage, Achan, the son of Kami, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. You've got a blue blood Israelite here. So we think, well, God's not really going to mind too much. He's, not, he's one of his own people. One of the ones that, that came through the River Jordan, that was involved in Jericho. God's not going to be too upset, is he? But God's a God of impartiality. You know that? The Canaanites of 400 years of, of sin, growing, festering, refusing repentance, and, and part of this, this is the focus on God's people and their story of salvation, but it's also the story of the judgment of the people of Canaan. And God shows no impartiality. Achan has been given a lot more than the Canaanites were. He understands so much more of who God is and Achan has deliberately disobeyed. And the consequence is verse 25, and this should shock you. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them, that's he and his family, with fire, and they stoned them with stones. God's a God of impartiality. Remember last week what happened? A Canaanite prostitute was spared because of her obedience because of grace. This week, a blue-blood Israelite is stoned because of his disobedience. It's the, there's a price of disobedience. You see that in chapter 7 and chapter 8. You can't miss it. And we tend to say, if you're like me, we think, that's Old Testament. There's no price for disobedience today. Or if it is, it's the naughty boy. But, but it's not, I mean, you know, God's a God of grace. And, and, so, so, and look, a lot of the things that we call sins are not sins anymore. They're actually good things. Just watch, watch the media. Watch, <laughs> go anywhere. They're good things. So they're not really bad anyway. And, and as before, you know, like, well, a bit of greed here and there. I mean, everyone's greedy. Or white lie. Just a white lie. You know, it doesn't really matter. Or do we have to stay within the boring old boundaries of marriage? Doesn't hurt anybody. And, and everybody's saying it's a good thing anyway. 
But, but these chapters of Scripture speak to us about the reality of sin. Um, recently, I read Frankenstein. As I'd seen all the caricatures of it all my life, I think, but who's read Frankenstein? Yeah, that's right. I'm like you. There's like four of us. Uh, Frankenstein, I'd never read it, and I always thought Frankenstein was the monster. You know, like, that's Frankenstein. Actually, it's not. When you read Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein is the doctor that creates the monster. The monster says his name is Adam, not Frankenstein. And, and what happens in that, that book, it's, it's a very powerful story. This doctor creates, does what he knows he shouldn't do, is he creates this being, and then this being follows him like a bloodhound. And wherever he goes, he pursues him relentlessly. And when you read the book, it's, and, and, and this monster is saying, you created, you, you, you did this. And he pursues Dr. Frankenstein until he destroys everything. He takes everything that he loved and destroys him. And sin, the relentless nature of sin is like that. And sin in disobedience to God is like the monster in our hearts as it was in Achan's heart. We can think, oh no, I'm hidden in the big crowd. But no one's hidden from God. Sin and disobedience from God is no, uh, you cannot worship a holy God and think that sin and disobedience is unimportant. If we think and do that, we actually say God's not really holy. But we, we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. Sin matters, right? Chapter 7 and chapter 8 matters. Uh, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, for the wages of sin is death. The cost of disobedience is terrible. And I don't know about you, but did you hear the deja vu in this passage? Are you getting a sense of like, we've been here before with Achan? Let me show you how clear it is in the scripture that this, we're meant to see this. So listen to Achan's words in verse 21. If you, they'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, look at verse 21 and notice what he says and notice particularly the verbs that he uses. Listen to this. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. The verbs he uses, I saw, I coveted, I took, they're hidden. Does that remind you of anything? If you're in the Hebrew culture, you know, you listen to those verbs and you go, I know what Achan has just done. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, 8. Listen to the verbs. When the woman saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. She saw, she desired, she took, they hid. Achan's disobedience, it's the disobedience of the world in which we live. God's people have always been tempted to, to covet that which is not theirs to take and their rebellion against God coming from the very beginning has always brought consequences that are tragic. Now, thirdly, though, what's clear in this passage, uh, not so much in the bit we read, but in chapter 7 as a whole, is that there is a terrible price for disobedience. 
Yes, we looked at that. But that price is paid by the innocents, not just by the guilty. And this is the hardest part, I think, to stomach, at least for me. We live in an individualistic Western culture where we think like, you know, you only get what you do yourself. It's unfair that I should be impacted by someone else's disobedience. But that's actually not a biblical worldview in many ways. And, and think, about, think about the cost of Achan's sin. So 36 soldiers, and we just read that and go, oh, that's 36. That's 36 soldiers who's, who they're bleeding out in front of the town of Ai, and they haven't done anything wrong. The Bible makes it very clear it's because of Achan. His individual sin results in 36 soldiers dying. And then we think, what about their parents? What about their children? What about the wife, wives of those men who their husbands are not coming home because of one man's sin? And then we go on, like, well, what about Joshua? Now, those of us who are in leadership, we know sometimes it's tough. Joshua has must have been one of the worst leadership days in his life. He's on the ground in the dust weeping. What has happened? And what about the pain and the tragedy of all of the people and the morale that's destroyed? But what about Achan's family? What about, it? the text is very clear, it speaks about his sons and his daughters as well as his wife. They're burned and stoned. The consequences of Achan's sin is not just him, there are innocents that are impacted by that sin. And I hope you know this, but your and my disobedience of a holy God not only impacts us with terrible consequences, the monster chases us, but after the monster's got us, it gets other people too. Think about domestic violence. Or think about alcoholism. Think about sexual abuse. Now, they're all sins, but they impact innocence, people. Your and my sin impacts other people, and it impacts our community life. If you disobey God in, in any sense, we all are impacted as a church community. So you don't show. You withdraw yourself from the community of God's people. That doesn't, it's not just a sin that impacts you, that impacts those around you. Whatever we do as a community, there's a corporate impact of it. Sin hurts innocent people. Yes, it hurts God and it hurts us, but it hurts innocents too. And, and that, of course, goes back to the Garden of Eden as well, doesn't it? There's an extra-biblical book called To Estras, which is it's known as the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha can be valuable. It's not Holy Scripture, but it's valuable. But To Estras says this, and it's right, I think. It says, Oh, Adam, what have you done? For though it was you who sinned, the fall was not yours alone, but ours also who are your descendants. There's a, there's a, there's a corporate um, responsibility for, for one man's sin. And there's a sense in which we, we can't just, it's easy, well, it's not my fault, it's Adam's fault, that's why this world is wrecked, and why sin and disobedience and why I'm tempted to cover, that's all true, but then you and I are not just victims of sin, we're perpetrators as well, aren't we? Like, we also have sinned. We're not just the victims, we're, we're the ones that are, are committing the sins. We, we stand under God's righteous judgment, in a sense, like Achan did. We sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, when I, when I get to this point of, of the passage of the Old Testament, I go, is this true news? Biblically, from, from chapter 7 and 8. I hope you'll see with me, yes, it's true. 
God's a holy God. Disobedience has terrible consequences for you and for those around you. And we live in a world where those disobediences are all too common. So it's true news, but is it good news? No, thank you. That's Stacy. That is so right. It's not good news. At least it's not good news to me that my sin has consequences. My disobedience causes my own death. I've got this Frankenstein monster pursuing me. Thank you. Not good news, right? I've got a holy God and I've fallen far short of a holy God. That is not good news. It's true news, but it's not good news. Uh, to address that, that book in the Apocrypha says, for what good is it to us if an immortal time has been promised to us, but we have done deeds that bring death? And what good is it that an everlasting hope has been promised to us, but we have miserably failed? It's not good news. But there's good news. that We see here the flow of the Old Testament, and this is given for a reason. God is still the holy God. Your disobedience to his commands still matters, but there's good news. And I'm going to finish this morning by turning to Romans, and I want you to come with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Listen to this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So who is this one man that he's talking about? Adam. Achan's sin impacted many people, but Adam started this whole thing. So death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Who was to come? Who's the type of Adam? Jesus. Paul says, Paul says Jesus is like Adam. And we think, What? Adam brought this catastrophe on a world. How's Jesus like Adam? Well, he goes on to say, he says, um, he says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. See what he's saying? Jesus is like Adam, but Adam brought sin and destruction and disobedience. Adam was like Achan, but Jesus is not. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam sinned. Israel sinned. Achan sinned. Jesus didn't sin. Think about that. No Frankenstein monster chasing Jesus throughout his life. No relentless anger of God for a disobedience against an infinite, holy, wonderful, good God. Jesus, as we saw last week, is faithful where Israel failed. Jesus is faithful where Achan failed. Jesus is faithful where you and I fail. And that's why it's good news. Uh, Paul goes on in Romans to, to say, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you understand how good news this is for you and I? 
We're in danger of reading Joshua and going away and thinking, I've got to be more obedient. I don't want to, I don't want to disobey because look at the consequences. They're terrible. I want to do the right thing and I want to go to heaven. I don't want to do the wrong thing and go to hell. And while there, there is some truth in that, the heart is wrong. When we see here Paul saying, Jesus comes, and because of Jesus, we, have, we reign in life. We, we're like a king reigning in life. We're not victims to sin anymore. And you might say, well, so we don't need to obey then. Because Jesus, like Achan died, and his sin resulted in victory for Israel. So, so Jesus died, and my sin is paid for. It's all ended on the cross. So it doesn't really matter. So why not take the shimmering cloak or the things that I covet? Because grace is there anyway. And that's actually not an illogical question to ask. It's a wrong question, but it's not illogical because we know in the very next chapter of Romans, in 6 verse 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No. How can we who died to sin still live into sin. So, so this morning, as I want to close, I want us to turn our eyes to Jesus. The, the band are going to come up, and we, we're, going to, we're going to sing to him. We're going to remind ourselves of the gospel, right? That we look at the book of Joshua, and we see the true words. We see truth that God is a holy God, but we see in Jesus that our debt is paid. That Jesus died for your sin and my sin. That Jesus rose again to life, so that you and I might reign with him, we might be united with him. You and I are not under the power and condemnation of sin. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But I want to finish by saying there will be consideration. No condemnation, but there will be consideration. Listen to how Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Hear him saying that? Paul says, I want to please Jesus. This, this day that I get up and the things I'm going to do, I want to please Jesus. I, I want him to look at me and be pleased with the way I'm living my life. You see, not condemnation, but consideration. That, and he goes on and he says, for, that's why I want to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hear that? Jesus is our better Achan, our better Adam. But you and I, there's no condemnation in Christ, but there is consideration. You and I will each stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our deeds and our lives, our motivations, our actions will be weighed. Not in condemnation, but in consideration, and Paul says, I make it my aim, I want to please him. Sin's lost its power, I'm reigning in life with Jesus, so I want to please him. Don't you want to please him? I, I think deep in our hearts, if you don't want to please him, you don't know him, really. You want to please him. I, I think of that, that moment, that terrible moment for Peter. You know that moment around the fire? I don't know him, don't know him blasphemies, words, 
don't know, never heard. And then Jesus looks across the fire and he makes eye contact with him. And I always used to imagine, I think, before, when I didn't, I, I imagined that I saw that Jesus was condemning him in that moment. Saying, how dare you? I've done everything for you and this is what you've done. But I don't think that's true. I think when, when Peter caught eyes with Jesus, he saw grief. It's Peter. Sorrow. Love. And then there's that moment later on when Jesus walks along the beach with Peter. And I can imagine, I don't know if this is true, but I imagine Jesus has his arm around his shoulder and they're talking. And it's not really fun for Peter. (laughs) We make it our aim to please him. We're not under the condemnation. Jesus paid that. But your obedience and my obedience still matters. Because we want to please him. And in that final day when maybe Jesus puts his arm around your shoulder, it could come very soon, and we have that talk, just you and him, me and him, I want to please him. So as I pray, I, I pray that you know this Jesus. I pray that you are not someone who comes thinking that your obedience earns your salvation. That's not good news. That's not the message we have for the world is just be better and be more moral. We present Christ Jesus, suffering in death, raised to life, the one on whom all of God's anger and wrath terminate, so we're free. And it's my hope and prayer that, that you want to please him. You want to please him. So let, let's pray. Father, we, we pray this morning that we prayed as we began that everything would be about you, Lord Jesus. And so we ask you to do the work in our hearts through Joshua chapter 7 and 8 to show us that we need you and to show us that you have given us everything that we need in Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we want to please you. As a church, we want to please you. If there's disobedience in our lives, we, we want to put it to death because we want to please you because you have done everything for us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.